our Father in heaven. Just love the record in Scripture that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is to say, every word of the Bible is yours. And it's profitable or useful for doctrine, for reproof and correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, and therefore we are called to preach, in season, out of season, to preach. Your word is powerful. The person who meditates on your law day and night is blessed and is fruitful. The person who reads and meditates on your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit walks in obedience to your word will be filled with your spirit, will be able to know and discern your will, will have strength to follow you and to serve you, will be so filled in their minds and in their hearts with love for you and joy, real joy and peace that we can't but serve you and spread your gospel, encourage the church and make disciples, grow as disciples ourselves. Thank you for your word. Help me to speak today. Help us all to listen today. But please, 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 Lord, let us hear from you. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, Lord, we pray. Amen. So, as you know, and welcome to the many visitors that are in the room today. I start off by saying, as you know, but if you haven't been here at church in a while, then you don't know. So I'll just review real quick that we have been going through the sermon of the Apostle Paul. Not really a sermon in like the church sense, but the Apostle Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he gathered the elders of the Ephesus church in a, in a different town because he knew if he went to Ephesus, where he had spent so much time, if he got there, he'd get pulled into good things, ministering and serving. But he was eager to make it to uh, Jerusalem. And so he stopped in a city called Miletus and he called the elders of the Ephesus church and he made this address to them. And so in our church, we have been slowly going through this address because it is so filled with important things. And certainly important things for me as a pastor, but many important things for all of us as Christians, all of us who are part of a church. And, and that's really every Christian ought to be part of, every Christian is supernaturally, spiritually part of the body of Christ. And then the manifestation of that in life is you should be part of a church. Attending, serving, being part of the fellowship, serving the Lord together. And so he asks the leaders of the Ephesus church to come to Miletus and he gives them this powerful, powerful address. Now let me go ahead and read some of it. Again, we're just going to take a little chunk of it today. But the address itself starts in the middle of verse 18 with the words, you know. So Acts 20 and 8 verse 18, right in the middle, he says to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, which is what we today would call Turkey, that region, and Ephesus was in the western part of that region, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many 
tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That portion of this sermon is what we've covered so far. Right? So he starts off there by reminding them of some things, right? Now verse 22, he, which is what we'll consider today, just verses 22, 23, and 24. And uh, what he does here now is he begins to launch into now the heart of what he wants to say. Really, the message has three sections, right? The first section is what I just read, which was, reminders of some things about himself and how he served and the example that he set, the gospel that he preached. This section that we're going to read today now describes for them what he's about to do, what's about to happen to him, and his attitude towards it, right? And then the third part of it that comes after that, of course, is what? Your elders in the Ephesus church, here's what you need to do now, right? So today we get 22, 23, and 24 Here's verse 22. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then from there, in verse 25, I won't read it now, but he launches off and says what's going to happen to them and what they need to do. So here we are in this section where Paul describes what's about to happen to him, and it's so instructive to learn what it is that is his attitude. Now, I was thinking about this a lot, getting ready for this message. The fact that, you know, you're reading through the books of the book of Acts, which is a narrative. It's telling a story, and the, the human character in the story that is center stage here is Paul, the apostle. And so what happens is, as you're preaching through these things, you find yourself as a preacher talking a lot about Paul. But I felt like it was important for me to say right up front here, and maybe I'll remind you again and again as we go on, that really, though, it's not a story of Paul as much as it is, it's God's word, right? And it's the story of what the Lord Jesus was doing in Paul and through Paul, and and then in turn, in the elders of these All churches, but the Ephesus church is in view here, but all churches and in turn all of the people in the church, right? So even though we talk about Paul a lot because he's the human character in the narrative, this is God's word for you and I. It's God's word for pastors and it's God's word for the sheep that the shepherds would minister to, right? The Lord wants you today to know these things. If you're a Christian, there are important lessons in this little passage that I just read about your Christianity, about your relationship with God. So let's just set that aside, all right? And and, uh, establish that, I should say. Listen for yourself. Listen with a heart and a mind 
that soberly desires to examine yourself and your own faith. Verse 22, let's unpack some of this a little bit. It breaks up pretty cleanly and nicely and I think is pretty easy to follow. He says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So the first sentence occupies the first two verses of the three that we're going to think about. Now, the first thing you should notice, of course, is the double use of the word spirit, right? Which in Greek is the word pneuma. And it's the same word describing the spirit and the spirit in two different places. And what I think Paul is saying here is, and the New King James Version helps us out with this by giving the first one a lowercase s and giving the second one an uppercase s. Um, and, and what he's saying is that he is bound in the spirit, meaning in his own heart. He is totally tied to the notion that he needs to go to Jerusalem. The Lord is leading him to go to Jerusalem. It's a description of his own spirit. But it's a little bit of a clever play on words. It's a contrast. Because you notice the second use of the word spirit has the word holy in front of it, right? So Paul says, I go bound in the spirit, meaning not referring to the Holy Spirit there, but referring to his own spirit. I'm, I'm bound, I'm fully committed, I'm fully constrained, I cannot but go to Jerusalem now. The Lord wants me to go to Jerusalem. I know there's all kinds of hard things waiting for me when I get there. Guess what? When I go to Jerusalem, you know, not for nothing, but in Jerusalem they didn't like our Lord, Jesus, when he was there, right? And when I go to Jerusalem, being someone who's run all over the world, even preaching to Gentiles that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead, if they didn't like Jesus in Jerusalem, what do you think they're going to do to me when I go to Jerusalem, right? And so, and so you know, but nevertheless, for all of that, in his spirit, he is bound, right? It's like he's got ropes tied around him and he is bound and his spirit is dragging him to Jerusalem, if you will, because he's so committed and so eager and so desirous to go. But then you see the contrast with the Holy Spirit. So his own spirit is committed to go to Jerusalem, bound to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to him there, except what? The Holy Spirit. Now who? Now we're talking about a who, right? When he talks about bound in the Spirit, he's talking about himself. But then when he talks about the Holy Spirit, now he's talking about God. Now he's talking about God in him. Now he's talking about the third person of the Trinity, right? The Holy Spirit, God himself, testifies in every city, meaning everywhere that Paul goes, I was going to look some of this up for time's sake, I won't today, but you'll see in chapter 21 when we get there, there's a prophet named Agabus who at one point takes Paul's belt and ties, ties the belt around his own wrists and holds it up and says, the person that owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him, right? So that, that's actually still coming. But Paul has been having this sort of thing happening everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes and he tells people, I'm going to the Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to... The Holy Spirit testifies, you know, here's what's going to happen to you, here's what's going to happen to you. Now here, here's the first lesson to notice. Paul does not take the Holy Spirit saying to him that... All this bad stuff, trials and tribulations, chains and tribulations, it says. He does not say 
He does not take that from the Holy Spirit as, whoa, I better not go. Right? No. He takes it as, thank you, Lord. I don't know what's going to happen, but you're letting me know that something's going to happen. So at least now that I go, I'm going with some insight from you, some expectation. I can pray. I can be prepared. But in no way is Paul taking the Holy Spirit's words as just some kind of warning or comfort to not go. And some of the people around them, good brothers and sisters in the Lord even, are taking it that way. So that when you read the passage in 21, chapter 21 I was telling you about, it actually says they start begging him to not go. And Paul says, Paul says, why are you breaking my heart like this? And he says, I'm not only ready to go, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. For the sake of the gospel. So he says, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying what? Chains and tribulations await me. Chains and tribulations, listen to me. Chains and tribulations did not cause Paul to change his plans. Wow. Verse 24 does not say, pray for me as I reconsider whether I should go or not. That's telling, isn't it? Chains and tribulations. One of the problems with modern Americanized Christianity is we let, listen to me, we let comfort and trouble steer us. If something bothers us, we avoid it. If we're not able to avoid it, we melt or we explode in rage. We do everything we can to make ourselves comfortable. We do everything we can to please ourselves. We try very hard to avoid chains and tribulations. Our Lord Jesus, the greatest counterintuitive thinker in the history of the world, and why wouldn't he be? Because he's the only holy person perfectly with the mind of God in the history of the world. And not in the only person not at all sucked up into the carnal evil course of the thinking of this world. Said, you will have trouble. Yes. But be happy. Be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Let me give you something that Jesus taught that Christians need to remember that apparently Paul embraced and got and all of us need to be reminded of. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. Before I even read on, let me just say, one of the greatest thought plagues in modern American Christianity is we don't believe that. We don't agree with him. We think, we not only think that Jesus came to bring peace 
and safety and prosperity and good things into our lives. We preach it. We write books about it. We make movies and television shows about it. We prop up heaps of teachers who say it for us. I read a passage of scripture in the beginning of the service. said Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. That passage of scripture has been twisted, completely lifted out of the context that it's in, and has been lifted out and is told to us that it's some sort of example of how he wants us to have nice cars, jet airplanes, fancy clothes, and not a care in the world financially, health-wise, relationally, no trouble at all. That's the abundant life. Paul's living the abundant life. This is the abundant life. And I don't say that as someone who measures up to Paul. Right? Because I get sucked into it too sometimes. But this is one of the problems is we, we strive to avoid these things that Jesus teaches and that Paul taught in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, do not think. That's a command. That's a command. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Don't think it. If you think that Jesus came to bring peace, security, safety, and everything into your life, you're disobeying him by thinking it. By thinking it, you're disobeying him. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does he mean? Listen to this. I've come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's the abundant life. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who find listen, he who finds his life will lose it. What does he mean? He finds his life. Notice, if you find the heart and the joy of all your existence here in earthly things, then the real life that he promises, you're missing it. You don't have it. Someone who is in the Lord and someone who is in Christ has discovered the greatest thing that has ever been given to the world. And so with gladness, he denies himself and he picks up his cross. He serves the Lord, and when trouble for serving the Lord comes, he takes it. He He doesn't like it necessarily. He doesn't find joy in it, but he finds joy in the fact that the Lord permits him to share in it. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses my life for my sake will find it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. In chapter 16 of Matthew, similar similar teaching, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's the cross? What does it mean? Do you ever stop? How many times are we going to read over that without like really just understanding? What does it mean to take up the cross? The cross only meant one thing. Every, every Jewish person who lived for years and years and years, their whole lives under the occupation of the Romans, knew what cross meant. Cross was the instrument of execution. That's all it was. It wasn't anything else. It was the instrument of death. Jesus said, take it up. 
deny himself, take it up, and follow me. In other words, you become, as a follower of Christ, dead to this world. Because Jesus is going to life. He's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who speaks and his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He's the good shepherd who speaks. And so we follow, we let go of everything and we follow him. Where? To life. To heaven. To the grace of God. To the throne of God. We follow him. Who are we to think that like we hold on to like just all of the pride and the, the earthly pleasure and all of the all of the debauchery and the sinfulness and the boastfulness and the arrogance about ourselves. Who are we to think that we hold on to that and yet somehow we're still going this way? I mean, what kind of a person thinks that way? I'm holding on to this, but I'm going that way. Try that when you drive. It doesn't work. No, don't try it when you drive. <laughs> Get a call in the middle and I, hey, Pastor Lou, I tried that thing you said. And... Right? Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Why doesn't that stop men from being obsessed about gaining the whole world? It doesn't stop anybody. We look at it, we admire it, we applaud it, we say amen, hallelujah, but it doesn't change anybody. That's the problem with American Christianity. We read our Bibles... We spout off about doctrine and theology on blogs and on YouTube changes, but no YouTube pages, but nobody's lives change. Nobody's lives change into conformity with what is taught. We're hearers of the word and not doers of it. And so we're deceiving ourselves. And preachers can say this over and over and over and over and we admire it. Nice sermon, Pastor. Praise the Lord. When are you going to go into the room and shut the Lord, uh, shut the door and pray to the Lord who sees in secret that He may reward you openly and cry out to Him and say, Lord, enough. Take me. Use me. Fill my heart. Fill my mind. Lock yourself away for a while with your Bible and read and just spend time with God and let Him fill you with the life of Himself. When he says to people, depart from me, I never knew you. You know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about people who say, Lord, Lord, look what I've done. He says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That's the problem in American Christianity. We read the Bible and we get bored with it. We read the Bible and we think it, we don't we don't think we need it anymore. I was so blessed, you know, to uh, last week some of the kids in the church put together a little Super Bowl thing and 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 you know at halftime we're able to just sit there and and uh, and share the word of God, you know, and preach the word of God. That happened at an event that I was at yesterday. Just share the word of God, right? You take chances to share the word. That's what we need to be doing, is pushing the, putting out the word of God wherever we can. And not just get sucked up into this world. The Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. 
The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Did you hear what I said? I read it right. I read it right. That's what Jesus said. He actually said, according to his works. What does that mean? Is a person saved by works? No. But he's rewarded according to his works, which implies what? When a person is saved by grace, his works change. His works become things which glorify and honor the Lord. We want to know God's word. We want to spout off intelligently about God's word without being doers of God's word. And all you're doing is tricking yourself. It's not even Satan deceiving you. It's you deceiving yourself. We need to wake up. See, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Seems that Paul got that. What happens to us when people revile us? What happens to us when people persecute us? What happens when people say all kinds of evil against us falsely? We explode. We rage. Jesus said when people do that because of your faith in him, when people do that because of your service to him, when people do that because you are his child, When people revile you and hate you and persecute you and say all kinds of things evil against you falsely for his sake, he said, you are blessed. He said, in fact, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. You see what Jesus does? Jesus speaks into the earthly and he speaks something that strikes the earthly ear as completely counterintuitive Because the resolution to the earthly matter that he's speaking into is not in the earth. It's there. It's in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. And so you begin to see the picture of what real Christianity is. Not the modern self-help, self-actualization, get everything you possibly can from God version. Not the version that permits professing Christians to not have any commitment at all to God, to his church, to his word, to his ministry, anything. Not the version that just says, pray this prayer and everything will be okay and then nothing about your life changes. Enough! Now you're getting a picture of the biblical version of Christianity, which is I have been saved by his grace through faith and now I am his And now, even when trouble comes my way, even when persecution comes my way for the faith, even when people, like he said in the passage last week, are undermined, the plotting and the scheming, they're undermining me because I'm trying to serve the Lord and I'm trying to go true and straight with the Lord. I'm trying to walk on the narrow path with the Lord. I'm trying to serve the Lord. I want to preach the gospel for the Lord. I want to be used by him to build his church and to build his kingdom and I want to be used by him to serve him. When you go down that road and you're serving that road and people persecute you, undermine you, lie about you, slander you behind your back blessed are you because you have been counted to be among the ranks of Jesus himself and all of the apostles and great is your reward in heaven now you get a picture of biblical Christianity and the modern church hates it because it doesn't conform to us and you know what God says 
I've saved you so that you will conform to me. Don't be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Chains and tribulations are part of the Christian life. Did you know that? They're a part of it. We try hard to avoid it. We get mad when it happens, but we should embrace it. Peter wrote this. He said, He said, Do not think it's strange. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved. I, I, I have to say this. Uh, you know, Dan Mercado, who just became a pastor, I heard him say in his sermon last week, I listened to him online. Uh, I, I never heard this before. Somehow I missed it. But apparently Charles Spurgeon says, beloved is like, the word beloved in the Bible is like the holy highlighter. Like whenever you see the word beloved, you especially pay Attention to what comes after it. Beloved, behold, dear brethren, things like that. They're like, they're like spotlights really trying to get you to zone in on something. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. See, that's what happens with us. When trials come, we think it's strange. Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? I'm his child. I believe in him. I trust in him. Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, so some strange thing happen to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when he is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. When he is revealed, when he is revealed, when he is revealed, he's going to be revealed in the future. He's going to be revealed. When he's revealed, you may be glad. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed you are. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, that is the ones who are speaking against you and reviling you, on their part he's blasphemed, right? But on your part he's glorified. Isn't that amazing? Someone can, someone can speak against, slander, gossip, tear down some faithful servant of God, and two things are happening at the same time. His words are blasphemy and his words are glory at the same time. Right? On their part, he's blasphemed because they're speaking against the servant of God. But on your part, he's glorified because you're enduring the hardship that comes with standing for Christ. Ah. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You follow? We should embrace it. We should embrace it. Now, going on to verse 24. None of those things move me, and nor do I count my life dear to myself. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but if you look at some of the different translations of Scripture, the, the King James and the New King James break that into two separate statements, but some of the more modern translations, it would seem to me as not, a, not personally a scholar of Greek, but someone who reads a lot of scholarship about it, that it's really just one statement where he's trying to say, I don't consider my own life anything of value at all, except that it might be used to fulfill what God has called me to do. 
That's the point. In other words, what he's trying to say is nothing is going to stop him or get in his way. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and if you tell me that even in every city, even God the Holy Spirit himself tells me trials, chains, tribulations await me there, I don't count my own life as anything. My, my life is for that purpose. If you're telling me that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to face death there, well, guess what? My purpose, my life is that. My life isn't mine. My life isn't something I've been given to just stroke with pleasure my whole life. My life is something that I am to lay down as an offering and service to the Lord, right? And so if I'm going to die, I don't count my life as anything to myself. I go back, so he says, uh, let none, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And look, look where this goes. Um, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God. Do you, see, do you see what he says there? On the one hand, he expresses that he has a proper view of himself in light of who God is. He's come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ and it's changed his view of himself. We have high views of ourselves, right? Paul, when he came to know God, developed a low view of himself in a proper way, not an arbitrary self-flagellation, self-deprecation, but true humility. Paul came to understand who he really was before the Lord. And he said in this verse, none of these things move me, so that, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that, are you looking at it? You see the word so that? so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from him. In other words, so you understand where I'm going with this, if you hold too high a view of yourself, you're never going to finish your race with joy. In other words, if Paul did count his life as something special, if Paul did embrace the teaching that God wants you to be prosperous now, that God wants you to be, to have everything and the best of everything, and God wants you to just be able to relax, and God just wants you to have all the best clothes and all that, blah, 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 you know, all the material stuff and all of the earthly blessings. And if, if Paul just kind of kicks back, and relaxes and say, yeah, God really wants to bless me, that's actually going to become something that hinders him from completing what he was actually called to do, which was to suffer along the road as he preached the gospel of Christ to people who were lost. You see the words, so that? In other words, they're not separate concepts. It's not, it's not, that, I, it's not that I have a humble view of myself and... I also want to finish the work that he's laid out for me. No, it's I have this correct view of my own life so that I can finish my race with joy and complete the work that he's called me to. I think a high self-view robs you of joy. It's the exact opposite of what we're taught. We're taught that we need to have a little better view of ourselves and that's why we're so depressed and unhappy. I think, I think one of the greatest causes of some of the struggles 
with sadness, depression maybe that we struggle with. I'm not talking about the, the chemical version of it, but a lot of times what happens is we have such a high view of ourselves that when things don't go our way or things go better for somebody else, we get really down and depressed and discouraged. Because we're always looking at ourselves. We're always thinking of ourselves. Everything that happens in life is evaluated through the lens of how does this affect me? How is this good for me? How is this bad for me? Me, 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 me. A high self-view can rob you of joy and a high self-view can hinder your work. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. Look, just stop there. Because so much of modern Christianity says exactly that. Just believe, that's it. We're told here, it's not been granted on behalf of Christ only to believe, but what? but also to suffer for his sake. Not that the suffering is meritorious. He's talking to people who are already believers by grace through faith, you understand. When he writes to Philippians, he's not telling them how to be saved. They are saved because they're saved by God's grace through faith. But now as they walk and as they live, he reminds them the call to Christ was not just a call to believe. It was a call to believe and to suffer for his sake. And he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, what he was going through, it should be like that for every Christian. That's what he's saying. Maybe you don't like me saying that. Maybe that intrudes upon the comfort of the pleasure of your life. But that's what he's saying. When he writes to the Philippian church, it's the writing to the Philippian church comes after he went to Jerusalem and then went through all the stuff that he went through there, and then got on the ship, the shipwrecked along the way, and, everything, and he ended up in Rome, in prison. He's writing from prison. So at the point that he writes Philippians, he's writing to that church, and that church had, uh, or, and Paul by that point had already suffered all the suffering that he knew was coming in Jerusalem. Had been, he had appealed to Caesar for his judgment, so he went on the ship and shipwrecked on Malta and everything else that happened. And then he gets arrested and he's in prison. And he says to them, he says to them, it's been granted to you to also suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there's any, then he, like, listen to these words. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, any mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let, now look, at here you go. We're talking about how he had the right view of himself, right? Paul's view of himself in that prison was not that he was some kind of victim. He wasn't leading protest marches. You understand? He didn't start a political movement over it. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Paul had the right view of himself and was trying to teach them the same thing. 
Again, like I said in the beginning, I keep saying Paul, 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 but this is Jesus Christ talking to us through these words that have been written down. We need to humble ourselves and recognize that our lives and our existence is not just about ourselves. Right? Too high a view. And and again, what's amazing about all this is modern American Christianity actually spends millions and millions and millions of dollars on books and conferences and seminars and TV shows to tell them the exact opposite. And that's what Paul said would happen. They would heap up for themselves teachers to say the things that their itching ears want to hear. That's kind of a combination of two verses there. But that's, but that's, what, that's what he's talking about. We don't want to hear, look, you know, I, 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 can, I can read the emails already that will come. When you say things like, he's saying that, he's saying that, he's saying that it was granted to you to suffer for his sake, the same, just like me, just like I am, just like you saw in me and you hear is in me. And it clashes with us because here's what people do. And this happens millions and millions and millions of times over the course of an existence in places like America, but everywhere in the world. We have a view of God. The view of God we have is utterly corrupt and bankrupt of truth. The view of God that we have is that God is someone who is there for me to cry out to Him when I need Him. That is the depth of many people's view of God. We need, as believers, and knowledge of the truth to preach the truth and straighten that out, right? And we certainly need to not embrace that ourselves. And so people take that view of God and they bring it to the Bible. And they read the Bible. And when they read passages like this, they admire it, they say amen, but they do not because they cannot apply it to themselves because they have so preconditioned themselves to believe in a God that they have fabricated in their own minds before they ever open the Bible one time in their lives. And I'm telling you, when you come to God's word, you need to, become, you need to come empty-handed, naked, as it were, you need to come and drop all of your, pre, your presuppositions about who God is, what God says, what God does. You need to drop all your preconceived notions about some special relationship you already have with Him. And you need to read His Word and let Him speak to you. When He speaks from His Word, He will reveal Himself in truth. When He speaks through His Word, He will bring conviction. That's not the preacher making you feel bad. When he speaks the truth from Scripture, God, because he loves you, if you're his child, will bring conviction to try to bring you to repentance, to try to raise you up to be a fruitful servant, to try to be one who will serve with joy, to try to be one who will be driven along and prodded along and guided along by the certain knowledge of the future glory that awaits Hallelujah. So number one, we saw that tribulation for our faith is part of our walk and we should actually learn to embrace it. Number two, we see that too high a view of ourself is pride and actually interferes with and gets in the way of 
completing our work. And thirdly and finally, so that I may finish my race in joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Third and finally, he says what that ministry is. If you think church is anything other than what follows, then you need to conform your view into what he says. In one simple statement, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is why we exist. That is why God chose us and called us and reached us and changed our hearts and saved us and regenerated us and reconciled us to himself and adopted us and left us here. Left us here with the promise that one day he will come. But the reason he left us here, Paul knew it as an apostle. He's saying it to the elders of the Ephesus church because this is their job. And he's saying it to the elders of the Ephesus church because they are to take it and to teach it and to preach it to the people of the Ephesus church. Our mission is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. few other sayings here from Paul. Paul says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is to say, the gospel is the righteousness of God. Jesus dying was God's righteousness, right? Jesus being raised from the dead and now God justifying those who have faith in him is God's righteousness. And that righteousness is applied from faith to faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. In other words, every individual that believes is declared righteous before God. And and Paul told the Roman church that he was committed to coming and preaching that gospel there too. And he wasn't ashamed of it. To the Corinthian church, you know what he said? I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew what his mission was. Right? To the Galatian church, he said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, Paul understood the whole take up your cross and follow me thing, right? To the Ephesian church, he's talking to their elders right now. He also wrote them a letter and he said, when he asked them to pray for him, He said, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may be able to open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He was in prison, and while in prison, he wrote to the Ephesus church, maybe some of these same guys who were in the audience in Miletus this day received the letter when it first sent. I've never thought of it that way. But he wrote to them and he said, from prison... Pray for me that the Lord would help me to open my mouth and boldly preach the gospel. From prison! That was his prayer request. I want to be a witness. Paul knew what he was about. To the Philippian church, he wrote, 
I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, what had happened to him. I told you before, right? All the stuff that happened in Jerusalem, which is the last part of the book of Acts, the, the, the trip to Rome and the shipwreck and all that other stuff. He says, I want you to know that those things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard in, in Rome where he was a prisoner and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, even the secular pagan Romans saw that Paul's imprisonment and predicament that he was in was because he was a preacher of Jesus the Messiah. Even they saw that. And Paul said, good. So in other words, for his troubles, Paul says, good. Because he had a right view of himself and he knew what his mission was. My mission is to preach the gospel. So even if I end up in prison, I'm going to preach the gospel. Right? He goes on in that passage to say, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He even saw that his own imprisonment added courage to other believers. He was in prison. He was preaching the gospel to people because that was his mission. And as other Christians became more and more aware of what was going on with Paul, that made them bolder to speak up and preach the gospel. See, Paul knew what his mission was about and he made sure other Christians were encouraged by him staying true with his mission. Here's what he says to Timothy. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's, that's a reference to the gospel, the testimony of our Lord. It's another way to say the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Ready? Before time began. Whew. Sovereign God. But has now been revealed. See, it was done in God's mind. It was complete. It was already done. But now in time, it's acted out. It's revealed. It's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I've believed. And uh, Wow, is that a power? That's a powerful statement when you read it in its context, isn't it? I know who I've believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. See? There's more. That's enough for today. You get it? Paul knew what his ministry was about. So in this little part of his sermon, what does he say? Number one, he says, chains and tribulations await me. Christian, would you please understand that our life is not just a fascinating study of Jesus and filling our mind with interesting stories about Jesus. A true follower of Christ, which we all ought to be, understands that trials and tribulations are part of it. Embrace it for the glory of God. Number two, don't have too high a view of yourself. Let's not have high views of ourselves. High views of ourselves get in the way of love. They get in the way of truth. They get in the way of joy. They get in the way of serving the Lord. Let's have a high view of Jesus. How's that? Let's have a high view of God that's given to us from the Word. And let's esteem others better than ourselves. 
And then thirdly, remember what the ministry is, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what Paul says. So you see Paul says what's about to happen to him and what his attitude towards it was. Now next week, when we come back, we'll see what he actually says to them about what's going to happen to them and what they need to do. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for this time to read and study your word. I pray, Lord God, you would fill us with the truth of your word. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Fill us with your spirit that we may be courageous and bold and walk worthy of the calling in which we've been called. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.